we cut to Cassie. She is swimming through hundreds of bodies and blood. Um, and she is calling out for Jake because part of her will not accept that Jake is dead. Um, and she finds Jake's body, um, is uh, hysterical, gets beneath him and starts to push his body toward the riverbank. Come on, Jake, come on with me. I'll get you out of here. Oh God. Oh God. Uh, and then suddenly the river is gone. Jake is gone. Uh, and Jake is nowhere to be found. She's in an open ocean. Uh, she does, uh, uh, she surfaces and looks out at what's around her. Uh, there are dozens of sailing ships in every direction. Uh, but Jake isn't here. Uh, Visser 4 had escaped again, and we, like a tail on a kite, had followed helpless. Jake, I cried. No, he wouldn't answer. He would never answer again. And now another battle was preparing, another battle where Visser 4 could twist human history. Maybe the human race deserved it. My mind was nothing but pain now, nothing but guilt. Marco and I were going to save him from Krayak. We were going to keep him alive. But in a flash, in a battle that should never have happened, in a war that I hadn't even paid attention to in school, he died. I couldn't feel this pain. Couldn't. It was a hole inside me. It was a twisting knife. But beneath my own wailing, lost human mind was another. The dolphin. Yes, the dolphin knew only that the sea was full of fish, and that was good. This is only chapter three, kids. We got another many. Yeah, we're another we're twenty. Just over halfway through. Mm-hmm. But things do pick up from here. Yeah. Uh, so Tobias flying after Axe, um, reeling from the news that Jake is dad. Uh, dad, Jake is dead. Sorry. Um, and Axe is tearing in, uh, or tearing through the Hessians, the thing that we just heard from Axe's perspective. Um, mm -hmm. and once again, Tobias is calling out to Cryak or the Elamist that they quit to get them out because he doesn't want Axe to have to kill this Hessian officer. Mm -hmm. Um, but before. Um, before he can do really anything, he sees Axe heading for this officer. Before he has a chance to yell, um, this wall of white is rushing towards him, and it takes him a few seconds to realize that it's uh, a sail of a tall ship. Um, and it's fucking with the uh, thermals and the airflow, and he's struggling to stay uh, ahead of this. Um, but he's quick to realize that clearly there's been a time jump. Um, that Visser 4 did the damage he could do. And he's taking in these sites of a number of 
different ships. Like there's loads of them around in all directions, roughly two lines um, facing each other, moving towards an intersection, bristling with cannons, uh, with cannon. And he spots a lone dolphin keeping pace, um, but when he calls out, uh, doesn't get an answer. Um, but he circles down to a ship uh, and is able to get through an open window and to a table uh, with charts and maps and uh, figures out where they are because um, of it's in English that mm-hmm. they're in the Atlantic Ocean close to Spain and that a point of land on the map is labelled as Trafalgar. I should not find it so amusing that but I do that uh bar we obviously we don't go to that many conflicts. We go to Agincourt, we go to the crossing of the Delaware, mm-hmm. we go here to the Battle of Trafalgar, we're gonna go to D Day. Those are the cl- and really those are two that are very pivotal, though D Day was before really the full involvement of the US in World War Two. The fact that it's two battles that are so, like, would probably not be taught to American kids mm-hmm. as part of history. I don't know whether I should find that amusing, but I do. Because, <laughs> like, also part of it is where I live in the UK. Uh, but, like, the Battle of Trafalgar is just, like, it's big. Like, I don't, I didn't learn it about school, but it's just sort of, like, cultural knowledge, I guess. Mm. Uh-huh. Like, obviously, we have Trafalgar Square with the fucking column of Nelson on it. It's like a big pivotal part of uh, English history. You know, that time once again <laughs> when we fought the French. <laughs> Just how many times can you go to war with the same country? This is what happens when there's only 21 miles between you. <laughs> Just fucking attitude. It's it's just like the worst like neighborhood rivalry, except it's like mm-hmm. nations and they have military. Uh-huh. I should again shouldn't be amused. Um, um. <laughs> um but yes. And this is a completely different animal, uh, mm-hmm. no pun intended. Um Marco and Axe wake up in like uh, it looks like the rope storage. Yeah. Um, but below decks. Mm-hmm. Um, and Marco realizes that they're below deck on a ship. Um, and Marco's hands are shaking. And we just have this little moment of Marco apologizing and Axe asking for what before he turns and throws up. Mm-hmm. And he is like barely processing what just happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, watching Jake slip under the water. And like Cassie is berating himself because he made a promise that he was going to protect Jake. And we have this moment of it had happened so fast, one minute nothing, the next minute death everywhere. No arguing, no heroic actions, no nothing. It had taken a millisecond, and now 
What could I do for him now? Nothing. No one could help him. His parents. He would never come home. What could I tell them? What could anyone tell them? That's something that reaches through uh, the years and takes you by the shoulders and shakes you. Mm-hmm. Just the... The number of people who have gone to war and watched the people next to them die. And there's nothing that you can do to stop it. Mm -hmm. And, like, there's... There, they never go home. Mm. One of the visuals in film that's always really stuck in my head, um, the film adaption of uh, A Little Princess. Mm. Uh, I think it's Alfonso Cuaron. I might be pronouncing his name incorrectly. I really love that movie. I have a lot of affection for it, despite its problems. Mm-hmm. But you actually spend time uh, with Captain Crew and there's a scene in the trenches during a gas attack mm. and his attempt to save somebody and carry their body out away from the gas to try and survive this. And it's incredibly scored and it's just heart-wrenching. But, and that's sort of the futility of it. And the devastation of it hitting him. Mm -hmm. And just, yeah. I have to respect the the authors like K.A. For like, not only going like, okay, we're going to make this book series about how war is hell. And then take it away from the abstract of kids turning into animals to fight aliens. And go, no, this. It's different, but it, this is war. Mm-hmm. It is terrifying and horrifying, and people don't always go home. And that's the sad, horrible truth of it. Mm-hmm. This series, man. Yeah. Uh, but just outside the storage room where X and Marco are, uh, is, uh, an Asian guy and a white guy. Um, and the Asian guy is carrying a small barrel and the white guy walks up to him and just fucking clubs him to death. Um, uh, Axe prevents Marco from calling out because the white guy is Visser 4. Um, and uh, Axe cuts them out of the rope prison that they're in. Uh, this is quicker. I am very tired of being too late, Axe said. Um, and so they go running after Visser 4. Uh, and, uh, Visser 4 is carrying the barrel now. Um, it is a barrel of gunpowder and he's laying a gunpowder trail. Um, 
Marco begins to morph gorilla. Uh, I'd been a gorilla before, but this was different. I savored every powerful muscle and sinew and steel beam bone. I was going to enjoy using them. Uh, he comes up on Visser 4 and uh, something hits the ship and causes him to miss his otherwise fatal punch. Um, I didn't know where I was or when I was or who was driving this, the ship. So I didn't know who was going to see a gorilla racing around, and I didn't care. Visser 4 had made a fatal mistake. This was a ship. There were only two ways off it. Swim or use the time matrix. He could lead me to the time matrix, or he could die trying to outrun me. There's something uh, about seeing this side of Marco. Because mm -hmm. we know Marco isn't gun-ho violence he's capable of doing it um mm -hmm. but he freely admits or he calls himself a coward quite frequently and while he can do it we often see him using the utility side of the gorilla morph or just like knocking people out rather mm -hmm. than doing serious damage but seeing him relish he's doing exactly what Cassie did but whereas Cassie like sunk into the dolphin morph because it was peaceful and it was escapism and anything rather than feel that gaping grief Marco is taking in the power because he feels powerless mm -hmm. and he is relishing in this opportunity to not be terrified sad scared marco who just threw up mm -hmm. and to do what needs to be done and to take revenge effectively yep. yep and it's both very good and heartbreaking at the same time mm -hmm. sure is it's almost like war does bad things to people like it's a thesis <laughs> statement of these books or something <laughs> Weird. Weird. <laughs> Weird how that works. Weird uh, how that works. <laughs> we cut to Rachel. Do a podcast, um, Jade. It'll be fun, Jade. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, we cut to Rachel, uh, who has appeared in the midst of a bunch of sailor dudes. Um, and, uh, all of the men are really, like, weirded out by this person <laughs> just appearing. And they're like, oh my god, it's a girl! A stowaway! Um, they're kind of, uh, gross about seeing a woman and being, well, a girl and being like, uh, should I escort her downstairs? Um, and, uh, everyone's like, the, the captain's like, no, just fucking go do your job. Um, <laughs> and Rachel just basically just runs away because cannons begin to fire, um, and rip into the ship. Uh, it, I love the, description here that 
Uh, I think it comes just a little bit later. But again, we get the sense of just immediate chaos as soon as the gunfire starts. Um, and everything just starts exploding. Um, uh, she is shocked by just the sheer noise of it. Uh, but she sees Visser 4 running, followed by a gorilla. Uh, so she begins to run after them. I uh, know it's a serious situation, but that is the most Benny Hill shit of just <laughs> someone being chased by a gorilla. <laughs> just like, I you think just in imagine, the notes, yeah. Mm hmm. I think in the notes I put Marco goes or Visitor Four goes by pursued by gorilla. Uh, <laughs> exit. But yeah, it's got. Pursued it's by got bear. I just just imagine just yakety sax playing in the background mm -hmm. of this, just like totally undercut the message of yep. what they're trying to achieve. Yep. But also, it cannot be helped, and I'm sorry. Blame yep. Benny Hill. <laughs> uh. And so Marco is chasing Visser 4, Rachel is chasing Marco, Pandemonium, a gorilla, a hawk, a girl, and a leotard all racing, chasing a man with two clear skin and two white teeth while blue-coated officers bellowed, red in the face with rage, and scarlet-coated marines and dungareed sailors formed a freak's, freak show chase scene. Uh, Visser 4 begins to climb the rigging. Um... And apparently is fucking good at it. Like, this man did, like, X games on his weekends or some shit. Like, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but Marco can't follow because gorillas aren't as fast and, uh, the rigging isn't exactly, like, he's not dext dexterous enough for the rigging. Um, Marco is furious. Uh, he's yelling after Visser 4, uh, you're dead. Um, and then we get this from Rachel. Now the cannons were no longer firing in regular volleys. French and British alike were firing as fast as they could. It was a mad race of death. Which crew, British or French, could pull a ton of cannon back fastest? Who could swab the red-hot barrel? Who could ram in the canvas bag of powder, the wadding, the cannonball, wrestle the cannon back up snug against the port and aim it, all while being fired on by cannon and muskets? Not my problem. Not my war. My war was with Visser 4. Uh, and she begins to morph chimpanzee. Uh, and climbs the rigging after Visser 4. Uh, the ships were now within a few feet of each other. It was simple violence, hammer blows, hammering, 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 as timbers shattered and cannons were blown off their mounts, and sails and masts and rigging fell and men were torn apart. Uh, and she follows Mr. Four and is almost at him. Uh... Up and up, hand and foot, hand and foot, effortless. Visser 4 was above me, heading higher. Then he looked down and saw me. I enjoyed the fear in his blue eyes. I loved the fear in his eyes. That's right, you're all mine. Uh, and she, the rope she's holding is cut, but she jumps to another one. Visser 4 gets as high up as he can go, the junction of the highest spar across the mast. 
Now where will you go, Yerk? I asked him. Get away, he cried in a shrill voice. I don't think so. Your personal history ends right here, right now. No, let me live, and, and, the time matrix. You know you want it. Where is it? You'll never find it without me, he said. I laughed. It's a ship. It's only so big. I'll find it. You can't kill me, Andalite, he begged. Oh, but I can, I said. You killed someone I love. Uh, I shot up the mast, hand over hand, three seconds, and I would... Falling. I was falling straight down, face up, so I could see half a chimpanzee still clinging to the mast. Falling, spinning now, the realization slow and seeping into my dying brain. I'd been blown in half. Darkening eyes saw Visser Four crowing, laughing, and... Tobias. The chimp fell to the deck, a hundred-foot drop. The cannonball had separated head and left shoulder and arm from the rest of the body. Rachel, demorph, demorph! No answer. I knew. I knew. There would never be an answer. And Tobias is much like Cassie was, hysterical. He's crying out that Rachel is dead. Uh, what? Who's dead? Cassie? Rachel, I cried. Don't, didn't you see? Rachel. Oh, God. Oh, God, Marco wailed. It's not just Jake. We're all going to die. Uh, and Tobias dives after Visser 4. Um, and he rips through Visser 4's right ear. Um, but Visser 4 gets into the below deck of the ship. Um, where Tobias is at a disadvantage because he can't fly well inside. Um, he calls out to Marco for help, but Axe comes in and says, uh, that he sees Visser 4. He's chasing him. Um, and Tobias follows, finds Axe, follows Axe as Axe chase, chases Visser 4. We erupted into a small room. A barrel of what could only be gunpowder was lying against one curved wall. The hull. A trail of gunpowder led from the barrel through a small door. Axe and I raced for that door, and there, inside, stood a shimmering six-foot globe. And Visser Four. He was holding a flintlock pistol, cocked, but not aimed at us. It was aimed at the gunpowder trail. He grinned a grin made grisly by the fact that it seemed to continue in a red slash that went up to his ear. Nice try, Andalites. He fired. The powder burned. The time matrix disappeared. Visser 4 was gone. The powder trail burned and spit and crackled as it went around the corner. I looked at Axe. He turned a stock eye on me and said a word he must have picked up from humans. <laughs> Get that barrel, I yelled. What? It's a bomb, Axe man. The powder trail leads to a barrel of gunpowder. If it reaches it, boom. Axe hesitated only a second. Then he ran. I fluttered after him. Marco plowed into the room. Axe swung his tail. The blade cut the powder trail just an inch from the barrel. Unfortunately, Axe's tail blade struck a spark. The remnant of the powder trail blazed anew. Oh, Marco began to say. And we cut to another chapter. I... Uh. It's the horror presented in the Trafalgar section. Mm -hmm. There's something about tall ship combat the i don't know why it hits hard mm -hmm. cuz i think for all the like 
gun violence, not to diminish the horror of the reality of gun violence, but it's quite common in in media and things like that and Mm -hmm. can be smaller in terms of damage. Mm -hmm. Cannon fire is so terrifying. The sheer physics involved. Mm-hmm. And add to that that you are on a floating box. Yep. With nowhere to go if it's destroyed but to drown because most sailors could not swim. It was considered bad luck, I believe, to learn. Oh, suspicious, superstitious lot. But I just, it's always, I suppose, very visceral, like the splintering of wood and the movement of cannons, mm-hmm. because everything is, feels so large in such a confined space. Yeah. And it's, it's so scary. Mm-hmm. I think because it is, that shifted scale of the warfare and like getting me wrong like tank fire is just a a different version of it Mm -hmm. but that like whole fucking sitting ducks analogy there's just something about it that is so terrifying to me yeah there's something about knowing fighting with cannon Mm -hmm. When you go into a battle, those tall ships, those sailors, like, ship-to-ship combat, I think you're aware of just how likely it is you're going to die. Mm-hmm. I think you might be able to kid yourself on a battlefield up to a point, especially if it's, like, earlier on. But I think it's so easy to die at sea anyway. Like the way the number of things that can go wrong at sea. Yeah. And you've just got the one ship's doctor, if you're lucky, to look after you. Mm-hmm. And it's uh I mean it's it's the idea that if you're on a battlefield fighting sword to sword, mm. there is a sense of skill involved mm. to an extent. Um, there's, you know, you can die by arrow just as easily, but there's mm. all, you know, there's, there is that sense of like, well, if I'm just a good enough fighter, I can probably mm. make it out of this. Yeah. Whereas if you're, if you're on a ship being fired at by cannon, like it's, it's dumb luck. Mm-hmm. It's where where did they happen to be aiming? Um, mm-hmm. Because you're just you're not going to be able to get out of the way in time, and it makes and me you think can't of run. No. there is nowhere to run. Even if you wanted to, you yeah. couldn't because there's nowhere to go. There's no part mm-hmm. of a ship that's necessarily going to be safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just makes me think how over the centuries. We have just made war more and more impersonal. Mm-hmm. You know, you go from having to be next to someone to kill them 
Mm -hmm. Um, being able to see their face to the things like, like the invention of the gun. Mm -hmm. You have musket fire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and then you get things like cannons and other explosives that, Mm -hmm. you know, you could be totally out of sight and get got. Yeah, humanity is increasing, fucking putting our ability and our ingenuity and our creativity in. How can we kill people more effectively and make it easier for the person that has to do it? Mm-hmm. I hate it. And I speak, this is somebody that can find weaponry incredibly interesting and like the history of it and the craftsmanship involved. But like, the tools of violence and of warfare is a deeply disturbing thing when you get some, as soon as you get a perspective on it mm-hmm. outside, just like, and we get this from Axe, as those, there's some clumsy, clumsily written analogies and comparisons mm-hmm. drawn. And the ongoing ways in which people hurt each other. And I can see why somebody might easily lose faith in humanity when contending with that. Yeah. Uh, So we cut to device. I do have an urge to watch Master and Commander again. (laughs) But that's because Paul Bettany is the man. No, not just. Paul Bettany is very good. Uh, but yes, we cut Tobias. to Tobias, who wakes up at the base of a tree on a college campus. No one else is around. Um, this he... is our one non-combat yeah. time jump. Well, one of two mm-hmm. non-combat based mm-hmm. moments. And this is where we start to see Visser 4's plans unraveling. Mm-hmm. It's very good. Yeah. Uh, Tobias calls out to Axe, Marco, and Cassie, um, and isn't sure if any of them are alive. They're getting more spread out across time and space. Um, Tobias morphs human, goes steal some clothes. Um, one thing, he notices two things about the campus. Uh, well, three things. One is that uh, all of the people here are men, and they're all wearing, like, crew cuts, and everyone is white. Uh, And uh, Tobias grabs some clothes, uh, goes into a classroom, and finds a history book. Uh, The book is stamped Princeton University. And the publishing date on the book is 1932. Uh, and he opens it and looks through to some of the places that they've been. Uh, I whipped it open and scanned the contents. Revolutionary War. Revolutionary War. No listing. But there was a listing under Rebellion. Colonial. I flipped to the pages. I found what I was looking for. The rebellion collapsed following the disastrous attempt by rebel leader George Washington to attack British-allied Hessian troops. 
Rebel troops attempting to cross the Delaware River were ambushed by Hessian allies who had been alerted by a local resident. The result was a massacre. Washington was mortally wounded, dying three days later while in British custody. Local resident, Visser 4. I sucked in air. I'd been there. How long ago? 150 or so years ago? Or just an hour ago? They didn't mention the death of an unknown rebel, a boy with a bullet in his brain. He looks up Trafalgar. Uh, there's no mention of Rachel or gorillas or hawks or chimpanzees. The entry simply explains that the British Navy had been defeated by a fleet made up of French and Spanish ships. Lord Admiral Nelson was killed when his ship Victory was sunk by an explosion below the waterline. I shook my head. I didn't know how it was supposed to turn out. I'd never even heard of Trafalgar. Didn't even know what war it was. I closed the book. I raised my eyes and saw the flag flying from a tall pole. It was pale blue with a small British Union Jack filling one corner. Princeton University was not flying the American flag. No one was flying the flag of the United States. There was no United States. What there was in its place, I didn't know. But the United States of America had died on a sleet, stormy night on the Delaware River. And suddenly, Cassie appears, a dolphin in an alleyway. Uh, she is a little baffled by this situation. She still kind of wants to just run away, but she realizes quickly that, like, she can't do that. She has to help the others. Um, but, uh, she's still tied to the time matrix, so when the, when Visser 4 jumps, so does she. She kind of just wants to just lie there and die, um, but the dolphin isn't happy anymore. The dolphin is panicked because it's beached. Uh, and so it is no longer solace for her. So she begins to demorph. Um, Tobias is there uh, coaching her through it and telling her to go faster because people are coming. Um, he explains that they're at Princeton. They don't know why. Uh, Marco and Axe were with Tobias, but they, he doesn't know if they made it. And Rachel is dead. Um, it didn't end with Jake, Tobias said. We all, look, we have to end this. We have to take this guy down. So demorph, we have work to do. I did it all on automatic. Rachel, I should have been there for her. I had run away nursing my wounds. I'd abandoned Rachel when she needed me. Uh, the dudes, the students who were, uh, mentioned come up to them. And they're like, what is that? And Tobias is just like so done <laughs> with everybody. I love Tobias so much. <laughs> it's a dolphin turning into a girl. I'd explain, but trust me, you wouldn't understand. And the students are like, we have to get a doctor. And Tobias is like, don't listen to them. Just demorph. Well, we have to get after Visser 4. Um, and he's like, hey, do you guys know what year it is? Uh, and then we get a scene. Uh, I appreciate your description of it being a C. <laughs> <laughs> um, why, it's a colored girl, the third guy said. He looked down at me with concerned blue eyes. I've never seen the like of this. Hey, guys, help us out, okay? What year? What country? Don't answer him. He could be a spy. I was almost entirely human. I stood up, shaky. 
Sorry, I said. I know it's kind of gross to watch. How did you do that? The man with the southern accent demanded. And then, like some vile punctuation, he added a word I won't repeat. We all know what the word was, readers. Uh, it was like a slap. I couldn't answer. I just gaped. What did you call her? Tobias asked. The student shoved Tobias hard against his chest and sent him sprawling back. I'm not addressing you, little boy. I'm talking to this creature here. He grabbed me by the shoulder and shook me. Speak up when a white man asks you a question. Hey, this isn't Alabama, Davis, the short student protested. Davis ignored him. Don't tell me how to deal with coloreds, Friedman. Most likely this is some kind of runaway slave. I shot a glance at Tobias. In his human morph, he could do little, and he'd have to pass through his hawk form before getting to what Marco would call serious firepower. But that was okay. This small battle was all mine. I didn't want any help. You don't like black people, Mr. Davis, I said pleasantly. No problem. I can turn white. Watch me. Most of the time, I'd probably have let it go. I'd been called names before. I'd run into racism before. Mostly, I figured people like that were just sad, weak-minded fools. But so most of the time, I just avoided people like that. But I had been in three wars since breakfast. I had seen Jake shot down. I'd just learned that Rachel, my best friend, was gone. I was sad and ashamed and filled with rage all at once. So this wasn't most of the time. White fur began to grow from my face. Actually, it was clear fur, hollow needles of fur that were designed to keep the polar bear warm. But the fur looked white, taken altogether. My hands swelled, big as dinner plates. Long, raked claws extended from the fingertips. I was growing whiter, and bigger, much, much bigger. It's some kind of voodoo trick, Davis wailed. Tobias was back on his feet, arms crossed over his chest, looking on calmly. You two guys may want to step back out of the way, because I don't think Davis here is going to have a very good day. I loomed larger and larger. Davis began to back away, pressing against one alley wall. But sheer amazement and disbelief kept him from running until it was too late. Finally, he broke and ran. I slammed a pile driver front leg into the wall and blocked his way. Don't like me? I said. He turned the other way. I slammed my other front leg to block his escape. Nah, nah, don't kill me, don't kill me. He looked at Tobias. Don't let her kill me. Tobias shrugged. With a sudden movement, I opened my jaws, twisted my head sideways, and clamped my mouth over the guy's face. Davis's cheeks vibrated from the sound waves of my roar. His hair blew back. Personally, I'd apologize if I were you, Tobias suggested. Davis babbled his apology into my open mouth. He kept apologizing even after I let him sink to the ground. Which, like... This is obviously a crowning moment of awesome for Cassie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also... <laughs> this is the thing that we mentioned at the beginning that is often used uh, to uh, shore up the argument that these books are anti-racist. Where it's like, oh yeah, I mean, Cassie fucking hands some racist's ass to him. Uh... And scares them shitless. And it's like, yeah, that's great. 
it's a nice little scene, but also... Mm. Like, it's it unnecessary. Yeah. Like, I appreciate, and I like, and we're about to unpack a little bit of her doing a Rachel. Mm-hmm. Of her feeling so angry at herself that her usual sort of modus operandi goes out the window. Mm-hmm. Cassie going, you know what, actually, fuck this. Mm-hmm. But it would it doesn't need to be focused around her being a young black woman. Like Princeton's New York, right? New York State. Yes. Regardless regardless, I I'm obviously I am no expert on like civil rights of the United States. And this is of also a twisted history. Mm-hmm. Like stuff is not going so but but also depending on how much they wanted to say, oh, this is not Princeton as we know it, the fact that they have made this choice when they could have had some very chill just white guys just going, Okay, that's fucking weird mm-hmm. but didn't have to get like overtly and explicitly racist with it. Yeah. You could have had just somebody terrified of a monster because they just saw somebody turning from a dolphin into a person. But to to have it implied, like, it's not even implied, it's basically all I stated that somebody used an anti-black racial slur against Cassie. And for her to have to then do this... Mm -hmm. I will enjoy Cassie being a badass, but this doesn't feel good in the way that the events of 29 did. Mm -hmm. She shouldn't have to be dealing with that. And I am mad that K.A. decided that this was a part of the book that they wanted. Yeah. Just like, yes, let's have Cassie deal with an asshole, like, southern white guy. It just feels so unnecessary, and gratuitous. Yeah. And it's like it's the sh- it comes back to that shock value again, mm-hmm. and it it feels almost like oh yeah, well we maybe kind of made it a bit weird having a black character having slaves in the beginning. So what if she gets to be cool, and like yeah, we hadn't forgot she's black, neither has mm-hmm. she. She's cool. It's like mm, this does not feel good. Yeah. Like, we could have got her turning into a polar bear and being awesome to deal with a different kind of threat, frankly. Yeah, Yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's not great. It, it's not great, especially just off the back of what was at the beginning. It does Mm -hmm. feel like you said that, like, they're, trying to show the flip side of it, I guess. Mm. Um, uh, like, yeah, Cassie was a slave owner, but look, she's also a badass. Um, I don't know. It's, it's weird. I don't think, I don't think it necessarily belongs here, mm. but taken out of context. Oh yeah. 
Cassie's scaring the it. crap out of a guy <laughs> by turning into a polar bear and taking his head into her mouth and being like, say sorry. <laughs> Incredible. I like Tobias. I like Tobias standing back, like, after he's tried like, to stand up for her. And he stands yeah. back and they're like, don't let her kill me. You're just like, oh, it's not yeah. my choice. Like, Look, you are, you clearly didn't want me involved. You shoved me out of the way. I'm out of the way, like you wanted. <laughs> I'd apologize if I were you. He's helping. See? Mm-hmm. Real helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But we get... Cassie's released this guy who was a gibbering wreck on the floor, rightly so. And we get a, whoa, Cassie, that is so Rachel, um, Marco said. I recognized the voice immediately. He'd come up behind us. And that was surprising enough. But then, really? Rachel said, what are you doing? Stealing my act? Rachel, Tobias yelped. And a millisecond, he had spun around, grabbed her and kissed her. It's good shit. Uh, then he <laughs> held her back at arm's length. You're dead. Rachel, you're dead. I agreed. No, I'm not. Rachel said, yes, you are. I saw it. Tobias cried. I'm seriously not dead. I am convinced that she is not dead. <laughs> Axe said, fully in Adelaide morph, standing yep. in a cobbled stone alley on a leafy campus. So, uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, they, so they take this moment of, uh, relative respite of not being in an active war zone to mm-hmm. try to talk out what the fuck they're doing. Yeah. Um, they figure out that it's 1934. They're at Princeton. Um, they can't think of anything unusual that's supposed to be happening here. Um, and, and then they figure out that, uh, Visser 4 is here looking for Einstein. Um, and like Albert Einstein, who is in Germany, not in Princeton, where apparently he is supposed to be. Um, and they realize that Visser 4 has essentially played himself. Um, by changing things in the past, he has changed things down the line that were on his temporal to-do list. Um, so he, like, he's, he has jumped here expecting Einstein to be here because that's where Einstein is, quote unquote, supposed to be in the normal timeline. But he is no longer there in this timeline because Visser 4 has already fucked a bunch of shit up. Um, then they turn to the fact that Rachel is alive. Um, and like, why is Rachel alive and why isn't Jake alive. Um, Axe theorizes that, like, the terms were negotiated between Krayak and Elemist. Perhaps the Elemist had his own demands that it be only one life. And Tobias is like, wait, we have plot armor? And, <laughs> and Axe is like, probably, but I also don't really want to test it. <laughs> um, and Rachel's like, all right, look, we have to get Visser forward. That's the bottom line. And Marco is like, no, that's not the bottom line. This isn't actually about Visser 4. It's about the time matrix. We have to get the time matrix and fix everything that has happened because otherwise this shit is fucked. Um, and then 
Uh, basically, he says, we can't just stop Visser 4, we have to go back and rewrite history. They were all staring at me again. Cassie's mouth was open. Rachel was beginning a slow grin. I got frustrated. Don't you guys get it? We have to get the stupid Matrix and go back and... Oh. My God. It hit me then. What had already hit the others. Jake, Cassie said. Axe looked doubtful. Krayak demanded a death. He got a death, Tobias said. Jake died. Is there a law that says he has to stay that way? I intercepted Cassie's gaze, and then we both looked away. We'd been naive, stupid. We'd thought we could save him, that we could stop death from finding him. We hadn't even been able to shout a warning. Uh, and then suddenly they are pulled to a mall. And then they are pulled to an empty desert plain. And then they are pulled to the Parthenon. Um, Visser 4 is jumping quickly from time to time uh, to extend the diffusion effect, to try to lose the Animorphs, um, to hope to delay them so that whatever his next thing on his to-do list is, he has more time to do it before the Animorphs follow him. Um, and they jump again. Um, they jump through to the what I think is the Civil War, and then they jump once more to uh, someplace new, where Marco lands in a boat alone with a bunch of soldiers he does not know, who are carrying rifles and wearing helmets, and there are explosions going off. The sergeant in the boat is like, who the fuck are you? And Marco's <laughs> like, where are we? And the sergeant's like, are you some kind of stowaway? This is not the place you want to be. And Marco's like, yeah, well, I don't know if I'm staying or not. Where are we? We're in the English Channel, son, but we're about to be in France. Normandy. Normandy. Even I knew what that meant. I'd seen the movies. D-Day. World War II. The invasion of Europe by American and British forces. Only there was no such place as America. Oh, no, I whispered. The sergeant laughed. Yeah. Oh, no. Here we go, ladies. Keep your heads down and your weapons high and dry. Scrunch. The boat jarred to a stop. The ramp dropped. Rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat-tat-tat. The sergeant fell with two holes in his chest. Men were dropping all around me. It was the Delaware all over again, only now the death was faster. Uh, and Marco begins to morph to fly because... There's, like, he can't charge up a be Normandy beach uh, in any morph that he has and survive. Um, so he morphs fly. The men in the boat are uh, stopping bullets from getting to him by essentially being body shields, meat shields. Um, uh, machine gun bullets poured uh, continued pouring into the mass over me. Those that were still alive wouldn't be for long, and I'd have, and I'd have been dead myself, but for the protection of men whose flesh protected mine. <laughs> I wasn't noticing much of my transformation into fly. I was noticing the fact that my brain was about to explode. Too much death and destruction and horror. As bad as my life had been at times as an Animorphs, I'd seen real hardcore combat now, and it was worse. The men who died in these battles had been like Jake. 
they'd had no chance. Here, at Agincourt, back on the Delaware River, or on the beautiful, slow-moving sailing ship, no difference. Men stood up in the face of the enemy and were massacred. Arrows found throats, swords found vulnerable flesh, cannons ripped away limbs, bullets entered organs by neat, round holes and came out in a shredded mess. Men died never having the chance to resist, to fight, to run, to cry out, to prepare, to wonder. One second they were scared and brave and alive, the next second they were dead. Just like Jake. Cassie and I had sworn to protect him, but there'd never even been a chance. I shrank and morphed less and less human. My fly eye saw a world of shattered images, faceted, a broken mirror. Broken mirrors filled with huge limbs arrayed, arrayed like a cage around me. I fired my wings and rose up through the maze of arms and legs and heads out into the air. Uh, up out of the boat, which now drifted, drifted helplessly. The fly's vision was not good at a distance. I could see only what was close, and then not in detail. I was glad. I didn't want to see what was around me. But I could not block the fly's sense of smell. I smelled, tasted the spilled blood and drained bodily fluids. I couldn't help but smell them. D-Day. The smell alone would haunt me for the rest of my life. I checked the date out of curiosity and Saving Private Ryan came out the year before. Not hmm. that, To be fair, though, I hope, let me check the rating on it, that kids weren't see, necessarily saving, seeing the movie. Probably was mm -hmm. PG-13, wasn't it? Okay, it was rated R in the States. <laughs> so... <sighs> that fucking speech, or monologue, however you want to describe it. Yeah. yeah. The, the, we don't spend lots of time with every character in their headspace uh, mm -hmm. Tobias interestingly enough we're only in his perspective in very intense action moments except for that one at Princeton because mm -hmm. um, obviously we're used to him being a very introspective character mm -hmm. um, we see less of that from him in this book yeah. but it's interesting seeing the takes that we do get Mm -hmm. And my heart just breaks for Marco here. Yeah. Because there is so much understanding. And as I said before, empathy. Mm -hmm. But I can't help but think that there's this maturity there of he's seen this war, but he knows he's still fighting in one. And maybe it isn't outwardly as bad because at least he and the animals are knowing what they're doing mm -hmm. and are going into it with an awareness but I just it feels like somebody who knew that things were bad is having a perspective shift irrevocably yeah like, we've talked before about how, like, there are books where things are never the, quite the same for the character afterwards. And mm -hmm. I feel like this book is clearly going to have an effect on all of the characters. But I feel like Marco 
maybe more this is if I was to say who do you think is most impacted by the events of MM3 I would be inclined to maybe say Marco Mm -hmm. Cassie would be a close second I think Mm -hmm. but it's like ah (laughs) you guys know how I feel about Marco (laughs) yep that's my son um it's yeah. uh the the moral of this book i think i put in my notes at some point the moral of this book mm. is not it's not a subtle book um, no it definitely hits you over the head with the moral but at the same time like it's not it's not unsubtle in a way that is bad mm. it's unsubtle in a way that is extremely disturbing mm. I also appreciate that military is always going to be a contentious thing. Um, mm-hmm. I largely define, uh, consider myself to be a pacifist, for example. But what I really appreciate about this book, for all that I know some might regard it as a bit of a, a liberal position, is this book is clearly saying war is bad. Soldiers aren't the problem. Mm-hmm. And this is saying, like, yes, worry about it. It's showing compassion for the people that fight and die in them. And it isn't placing a moral judgment on soldiers, which I feel like a lot of war bad can do. Yes. And uh, I'm not interested in getting into the ethics of warfare right now. Maybe it could be an interesting discussion another day. I don't know. But talking about the very real human cost and Marco here reckoning with the inherent tragedy of war, Mm -hmm. it's good to see like that, that recognition of it. Like, and we haven't even touched on like the fucking fallout on innocent, on like civilians, on innocence. Mm-hmm. But the kids aren't bystanders; they are soldiers. Yeah. So I think it makes sense that we are seeing this perspective on the people who fight wars. Yeah. Like the people who are literally on the front lines. Mm-hmm. Uh. And from there, we jump to Axe's perspective as he lands as an Andalite in the surf. And basically, as soon as his hooves touch beach, an explosion nearby sends him flying through the air. Uh, And he hits the sand hard, uh, knocking the breath out of him. Uh, My main eyes were staring upward at the sky the blue atmosphere of Earth, beyond which was the blank of space, the now invisible points of stars, the disappearingly small planets. One of which, somewhere up there, far, far away, was my own. I had never wanted to be there more. I thought I understood humans. I understood nothing. They were mad, lunatics, evil, violent, destructive, hate-filled creatures. Axeman, are you hit? 
It was Tobias. I saw him drifting, wings spread wide above the smoke of battle. I'm not injured, I said, but I must tell you, I am profoundly tired of your people. I'm not exactly thrilled with them myself, Tobias said, but you need to morph. Nothing on that beach is getting out alive. I just talked to Marco. He's in Flymorph. Flymorph, not a bad idea to get wings. Uh, and so Axe begins to morph Harrier. Um, and they hear Cassie, uh, who has also gotten wings and gotten to the air. Axe is almost done morphing, uh, a perfect mix of Andalite and Harrier when another explosion buries him in dirt and sand. He panics, because as we know, Andalites are claustrophobic. Um, and he kicks at the sand with just limbs that are not built in any way to do that. Um, and he realizes he has to demorph in order to get out from under this. Uh, and then something lands on top of him. Uh, crushing weight, but the sand was off my face. I saw daylight. I pushed and shoved and wriggled my way with a body that was almost useless. I began to demorph, the panic under better control now that I had at least a glimpse of sky. I'm hit. I'm hit. Medic. The voice was shockingly close. Only then did I realize what had landed on me, pinning me down under the sand. A human was lying on me unaware. He struggled up, lessening the weight. No, 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 he moaned and fell back. I had to get out from under him, had to get away. All I had to do was get off the ground, reach the sky. Had to demorph to Andalite first, push my way clear. But the human was moaning. He was crying. He was calling for his mother. Not my affair. The madness of humans was not my concern. Another human slammed into the sand beside me. I'm here, buddy, this human said. My stock eyes grew from the bird head. I pushed one up out of the sand. I saw the injured human. I am not an expert on human physiology, but I believed the wound to be fatal. The second human was tending to him. He ripped feverishly at the wounded soldier's clothing. He jabbed a syringe into the man's arm. Doc, Doc, is it bad? It hurts. It hurts. You'll be fine, soldier. Morphine will. Bullets ripped the sand. The Doc flinched. He resettled his helmet on his head. He did not leave. An explosion, not twenty feet away, showered us again with sand. Don't let me die. You'll be okay, soldier. I'm just gonna... The doc fell atop the wounded man. A bullet had penetrated his throat, dead, while trying to save a man he must have known was doomed. Was this Visser Four's doing, or was this all simply a part of history? I felt a desperate need to think, to make sense of it all. One thing I knew, the battle on the river had not been part of human history. My friends were sure of that. The sea battle? No one seemed to know how that was supposed to have happened. One thing was certain, Visser Four had miscalculated at the university. Visser Four might be as confused as we were. Uh, what did it all mean? What was I missing? Surely there was a way to make sense of it all, to encapsulate all this mindless killing, all this violence, all this fear in a package of reason, logic. I was afraid. The realization surprised me. I was hiding beneath two dead bodies, spinning the wheels of my mind, trying to make sense of things. Thinking was so much easier than sliding out from beneath this grisly protection and facing the murder all around me. I was a coward. 
No, this was not my war. My war was with the Yerks. This was human killing human in some dark, distant past. Insanity. Lunacy. Coward. No, I had no chance. Everyone on that beach was dying. Everyone was going to die. Everyone. This wasn't my place. This wasn't my war. Not my place to die. Not my place to kill, as I had killed the Hessian officer. Marco, Rachel, Axe. It was Cassie's thought-speak voice, faint, far away. Don't answer, I told myself. Hide. Don't answer. Visser 4. Tobias and I see him. He's in a jeep, leading a column of tanks. We need help. Not my war, I said again. Then I began to morph and push the sand away. And unlike in 28, where we got a really weird, ham-fisted outsider's take on the meat industry, huh. here we have a really impactful and insightful take on human war from an outside perspective. Um, where faced with all of this, Axe is just terrified. And understandably so. This is a horrifying situation to be in. Mm-hmm. And like the others, Axe hasn't been in this kind of battle before. He might yeah. have had like some more training, but he was still like effectively a cadet. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really easy and understandable for him to be resentful. Like the, the, the repeating and again, this little mark in the, uh, autistic acts, uh, mm-hmm. column, column. We also know how sensitive he is to sensory input mm-hmm. as well. And how difficult, like we've seen the various kids react to the set, to the stimuli of their surroundings, let alone like this s- specific acts of violence that they're witness mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. And it's just so much. And because, like, Axe's, like, compatriots are also children who couldn't explain the conflicts. Like, and even if they ki- could, if they had the, like, the knowledge, the education about them, like, is there any, like, good reason? <laughs> Like, is there any explanation they could give that would make it make sense? Mm -hmm. Because you can think a conflict is the most justified thing. It might have the best of intentions. But when you're witnessing the reality of what that conflict is on the ground, like, I feel like Blackadder Goes Forth did a really good job of like expressing what it means like the people that make war versus Mm -hmm. the people that have to fight it like Mm -hmm. the difference between those two things Mm -hmm. this book is very good is what i'm saying which makes those first two chapters after the prologue so annoying (laughs) yeah because it's like the biggest fucking caveat we have to put on this book and like when we get to the ratings at the end it's like it does bring it down Mm because you can't help but thinking about it Mm -hmm. 
And it's clearly so well considered in parts, this book. And it hits so hard. And clearly, it's what the writers were intending it to do. 